Hey, good morning. Hey, if you're new, I'm Charlie, the lead pastor here. I'm really glad that all of you are worshiping with us. But especially if you're new, really glad you're here. We'd love to know that you were here. There's a Connect card you can fill out. This thing you can fill out online. You go to our Connect desk. Anyway, we would love to know that you were here. Any way that we can help you, serve you, please let us know. Uh, we are in our Christmas series. But before that, I've got a couple of little things I just want us to talk about. Um, we're getting close. Yeah, all right, we're sitting here. We're getting close to Christmas. And with that, as we get to Christmas, the end of the year, I want you to be mindful. We are going to have regular services the next two Sundays. And then the next weekend, Christmas Eve is on a Saturday. We'll have two services, one in the afternoon, one in the early evening on, um, on Saturday. And that'll be our services for the weekend. So we'll, we'll worship together on Saturday night, and then we'll have services on the 25th. And then January 1st, then also then is a Sunday, we'll have one service, 1030 on the first. For some of you, that's like so many weeks away, I can't even begin to process that. Others of y'all are like, hey, thanks, I need, I need, I need plans, right? So there you go, that's, that's what we're doing. And with that, I just always, I mean, this is one of those times when people are, one of the two seasons where people are most just kind of connected and, and wanting to get back right with God, to go to church, kind of a, a, a new, renewed spiritual interest. And so I just encourage you, I mean, just talk to your friends, Talk to your friends that are kind of loosely connected to church and kind of bring them back or people who aren't connected to church at all. This is one of those times you get a higher probability of yeses than you normally would. And we love having new people. We love meeting your friends. Uh, We love to connect with them. And especially over these next two Sundays, just a very Christmas-themed kind of who Jesus is, how to connect with Jesus themes. And so we'd love for you to do that. And also, and we've talked about this a little bit, we'll just talk about it briefly today, we're kind of preparing for a transition here that we're not sure, we're, we're not going to be able to be here many more years, probably somewhere between four and six more years, we're going to be able to be in this building. We're kind of preparing for that, and with that has kind of come, we've been raising some money, which some of you are aware of, and I'm telling you, I uh, just talked to somebody, I think we may be real close, I think we may have hit that 80 already. Uh, but I don't want that. I'm gonna like. Oh, we. I don't want that to like. You know, part of me wants to say, no, we're like one dollar short. Everybody give. Anyways, um, anyways. In addition to that, we really are. We're needing to kind of strengthen our financial foundation to kind of build just kind of a larger regular budget than we normally have. Because whatever our next building situation is going to be is going to require more than what we're currently doing. So we need to increase that for a lot of things. And so as we're getting to year end giving. I know that you know a lot of people that's kind of kind of kind of have some planned giving at the end of the year. Just encourage you to consider uh, the growth in that, um, if you would. Um, you know, we. Um, I was talking to a friend about about all of this the other day, and she was like, "Hey, you know, probably a lot of people in our church maybe think that we're connected to some sort of denomination or organization, and you should tell them, hey, the only funding that our church ever gets is from." is from us. We're not connected to any other organization or denomination or anything. And so we, we live off your, your tithing, your giving, your generosity, and so I encourage you to consider that. And also with that, I think one of the things that's going to be real important as we transition into whatever God has for us next, our connection to one another is really going to be important. And so that's kind of part of why we launched this Grove Groups initiative where make sure everybody in the church has somebody that they feel like knows them and is connected to them. And so, um, one, if, if you know what I'm talking about and you got placed into one of these, I just encourage you um, to connect with some people. 
to connect with those people, to, to make sure that everybody knows that they've got somebody. So if you have not done that yet, I encourage you to. And if you have questions about the Grove Groups, uh, Mark just recently recorded a podcast that you can find on, uh, on our page that has all sorts of answers to that question. If you don't know what I'm talking about, and for whatever reason you have not been put into a group or you're not, you, you still feel isolated, this is a great time to just fill out a Connect card, go to the Connect desk and let us know because that means you're here and we may not know that you're here. And if we don't know that you're here, then we may not be able to get you well connected and we want that for you. I know from experience that our church is very, a very friendly, loving church, but we're also not really pushy. And so it can be easy, like a church that's, that's kind but not pushy, to kind of feel like you're on the outside of it. We don't want that for you. We want you to take a step towards us, and we will do what we can to help you get better connected. All right, let's transition here to our Christmas series. Um, <clears throat> thinking about this, there's this thing that my middle daughter, Lauren, who is 22, uh, that she does. She's been doing this for years, and it's, and it's, and it's, it's I don't know if weird's the right word. I, you can, you'll, you'll know here in just a second. We'll just be sitting around, just having what, what it feels like very normal family conversation. And then she'll be like, guys, let's go around, let's talk. What do you think is the worst thing I've ever done? And it's, it, it feels like a trap. It feels like a trap to me because she is, we'll just say, mildly sensitive, right? And so, like, you, like you, kind of what you can do here is kind of, it's kind of unsure, like, do you start listing the things you know she's done? Is it this? And now you're bringing up bad memories. She doesn't want that. Do you want to say, well, I bet you've done this, but if it's too bad, then she feels insulted. So it's kind of, it's kind of you know, uncertain. She's here this service, so if you want to, you can go talk to her, and you tell her, you just go and tell her what you think the worst thing she's ever done, and she would gladly receive that from you. No. It's, 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 it's a fun thing that... It, that, that we do. Now it's just something that we just, kind of, we just kind of joke about. But you know, normal people don't want to think about the worst thing they've ever done. Um, but for me, it doesn't matter that I don't want to talk about it. It just pops into your head. I don't know if this happens to you. Maybe now I'm the weird one. I'm just driving along, minding my own business, having a good time, having a good day. And some of the worst things that have ever happened to me or the stupidest, most embarrassing things I've ever done just pop into my head. Does that happen? Help me feel a little normal. Maybe just three people. Is that okay? Okay. First service, they were they were trying to be cool, and so like I was like, "Is it just me?" They're great. Me and the second service people are vibing, and I and I hate that. And it's just, and and it's like your body feels it, just like it like like it just happened, right? And I'll do this. Like I'll be in the car, and it'll happen, and I'll make it. I'll go like I'll shake it off. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't. I don't want to live there. Right? I don't, I, don't, I don't want to think about it. Which really asks the question, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with the worst things that have ever happened to me? Especially if it's the worst thing, the worst thing that's ever happened to me is something I did to me. What am I supposed to do with the worst thing that I've ever done? Am I supposed to just pretend it didn't happen? Is it, does it define me? And... and how does it affect the way that other people look at me if they know about it? How does it affect the way that God looks at me? Because whatever it is, you play, hey, let's go around and talk about the worst thing I've ever did. I mean, God can play that game. Like, he was there for all of it. 
What does he, what does he do with it? And in our Christmas series this, this year, what we've been doing, we've been going through Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, as Matthew is getting ready to tell us that Jesus is coming, he starts first with a genealogy, Matthew chapter 1. And there's a couple of things that I think that Matthew is trying to do. If you, um, if you, if you know, if you get the whole theme of what's going on with Matthew in the gospel, he's really connecting Jesus to Old Testament prophecies and he's really focusing on his connection to kind of the, the, the kingdom, like Jesus as king, Jesus as God, Jesus as fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so he's going through this to make sure, man, he's hitting all the big names. Hey, this is Jesus, you know, he was, he's, he's connected to Abraham, connected to this. And you go through this list, and it was this, this dad had this son, who had this son, who had this son, who had this son. And again, it's just he's connecting Jesus to all of these kind of, you know, the, the, the royal line of King David. But in the middle of it, he's doing something else really interesting. While he's going, this dad had this son, had this son, had this son, five different times, he'll stop and add who the mom was. Which is really interesting because what he's doing, what, the effect that it has is, is that it makes you slow down as you're kind of reading through what can just be a tedious kind of genealogy, and it makes you stop and slow down. Is like, oh yeah, I know that story. Oh yeah, I know who that is. And it brings a story to mind. So there are some stories that Matthew is wanting particularly to have in our head as he's thinking about what it means for all of us that Jesus is here, that Jesus is coming. And it's interesting, there's four stories, and we, we, we were going to do them chronologically, that's how they're written here, but we've made it a different, because two of these stories, two of these stories, we'll just call them yikes, where it's just kind of like, well, I don't even want to think about that story on a, on a Tuesday in April, much less like on Christmas. I mean, they're just really devastating, kind of ugly kind of stories, and then two of them are very Christmassy and lighthearted, and so what we decided to do, rather than go chronologically, we're just going to get the yikes ones out of the way, and then as more and more new people are coming and we get closer and closer to Christmas, the, the, it'll, just, it'll start to feel more and more lighthearted in here, right, okay? So last week we talked about Judah and Tamar, which was a, a, a really awful story from, from her perspective. She's, a, she's a, a widow twice over, kind of abandoned by her extended family where she's just kind of alone and isolated. She tries to take matters into her own hands, ends up pretending to be a prostitute. I mean, it was just, and, and, and it was through that, tricking her father-in-law into thinking that she was a prostitute and she gets pregnant. And that's how Jesus' great, 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 great granddad gets come. And it's like, what? And we talked last week about just about her being unseen. And we talked a little bit about just... Um, how God can bring order to chaos. And because it's a very chaotic story. And so again, we're not doing this chronologically. We're just going to skip ahead a little bit. And we're going to be in, let's just look at it. Matthew 1, verse 6. We've got it here. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So a couple of things here is this is the only time that the word king is used kind of in the genealogy. It's the second time David's mentioned. He says, you know, hey, Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David. And now King David. It's about to be in a whole list of people who were kings. But get this title. Right? We're just drawing attention to David's name. And then we're drawing attention to the story of Solomon's mom. Her name is Bathsheba. But you'll notice that unlike all the other ones, 
she's not mentioned by name. She is referred to as the, the woman who had been Uriah's wife, which her not being mentioned by name, it could feel, you could take it this way, that maybe some shade is being thrown at her in particular. See, like we're not, we're like, like, like the, 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 the woman who must not be named. Right, but I don't. I don't really believe that. I don't think that's what's going on here, because she doesn't deserve any shade, and no, none is ever thrown at her. But she, when we hear the story, as terrible as it is, she really didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't her. It wasn't. She didn't do it. She, she was a victim of the story. I think the reason why he says it this way, because if I said, "Hey, and Solomon's mom was Bathsheba," there is in fact some stories that talk about Solomon and Bathsheba's relationship. And you could go into that, kind of what it was like, what kind of mom she was, and her relationship with Solomon. You could go to that story, because she's mentioned a few times. But Matthew wants to make sure that when, hey, I'm trying to bring this particular story to mind, that the woman who ultimately was Solomon's mom used to be Uriah's wife. And then he's like, do you remember that story? And some of you, you may remember that story. You may be fully aware of the David and Bathsheba story. Um, um, If not, we're going to be talking about it today. And again, I've I've already given you the spoiler. This is is not a pretty story. And the story starts, I'm just going to tell it, and then we're going to look a little bit later at a passage that kind of wraps the whole thing up. Um, It starts with this idea where... um, it says that in the spring, when kings would take, lead their armies out to war, David stayed home. So the whole thing gets set up by this idea that there was this time when, now it's not winter anymore, you had to get your troops, lead your army out there to kind of protect your borders, to push people who had been trying to kind of you know, encroach on you, to protect your land. This is the time when you went out as a king, and you led your troops in war. This is what you did. And this king chose not to. So it starts with, again, just throwing shade at David. He's not where he's supposed to be doing what he's supposed to do. Rather than leading his men courageously, he is staying at home. And it says, and while he was up in the palace, he looked along the way and saw Bathsheba taking a bath on the roof of her house. And, and he looked at his guard and said, I want you to bring her to me. And so he brings her over and he has sex with her and sends her back. And then it finds out that she's pregnant. And uh, her husband Uriah is on the front lines, again, where David is supposed to be. And he brings her, him back temporarily, hoping he'll sleep with her so that he can be the one that got her pregnant and won't be any problem. But he's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. My, my, my men, my brothers, they're out there on the front line. I should not be here. I'm not going to do this. So he slept on the front porch, never went inside. So everyone would know that he never slept with his wife. And so now David's like, um, well, now what am I going to do? It's going to get found out. So he sends a note with Uriah as he's going back to battle. He says, next time there's a battle, put him at the front line. And at the, and at the right moment, pull everyone else back so he'll die. And that is exactly what happens. And the message comes back to David. And hey, guess what? It went, went just as you went. And as you said, then he brings, it says he brings Bathsheba into the palace to become wife number, we're at least at four now, maybe five. 
wife number five in the palace, and he, quote, is going to get away with it. And there's another element to this story that is, that's like, Uriah is not just some random guy. We'll find out a little bit later as we were kind of reading through this group of people that are referred to as the 30, David's mighty men, his strong, his strong, the strong warriors, this close group of strong warriors that he had with him. Uriah was one of them. This was, not, this, this was a friend. This was a trusted brother that he did this to. And again, you've got Bathsheba, and you think, well, I mean, it takes... It takes two to have an affair, you might would say. I don't, just kind of look at this story. This wasn't an affair in any real sense of that word. So you're at your house and the king sends his guards and says, the king would like to see you now. What does she say? Nah, bro, I'm cool. You don't, that's not, you don't get to say that. I'm at, I'll, I'll, I'll catch him next time. No, the guards come, you go. And now you're there with them, and he says, hey, guess what we're about to do? What agency does she have? She didn't ask for any of this. She wasn't asking to come over to the palace. She didn't ask for that. She didn't ask for any of this with her husband. She's a victim. And she ends up in the palace, yay, as wife number five. I mean, she, she is undeniably a victim here. And this connects a little bit to the story next week. Again, I think that Matthew is really wanting us to focus on what David did. And again, the themes of this are very similar to what happened last week when we talked about the story of Tamar. But I want to just kind of bring this up again because not only I think it's a thread for these two weeks, but ultimately for all four. And I think it's important for us to make sure that we're catching this. And she has been abused. She has been hurt. She has experienced incredible loss. She's going to lose the baby that, um, that, was, that, was, that came from this situation. She's going to experience a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Same with Tamar. And I want to make sure that we all know this. Jesus sees you. We see all of these people who, for whatever reason, are kind of on the sidelines that are hurt, that have been damaged, that have been forgotten, that in their society don't matter. We'll see it next week. We'll see it with Ruth. We'll see it with Rahab. We'll see it with the number five that we'll talk about on Christmas Eve, Mary. She was nobody. And God saw her and said, you are highly favored with God, is what the angel said to her. People who were unseen and people who were hurt, people who were damaged, God sees them. Jesus came to see and to help those people who feel unseen. Now, there's a lot of different ways that you can say that. If I were to say, hey, guess what? God sees you, right? We get, it's Christmas time, right? We got a little Christmas, kid's Christmas song that's really creepy if you think about it. And Santa, right? He sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're like, oh, come on, man. That's weird. I don't like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. And, you know, and the way that preachers can talk about God can feel, you know, he, Creepy, invasive, hurtful, depending on the tone of voice. Hey, you know what? Whatever you're doing, God sees you. But if you're hurt and alone, isolated, broken, hey, no matter what you're going through, no matter what's true in your life, God sees you. 
You may feel unseen. You may feel that you don't matter. Maybe because you're hurt. You've been hurt. Maybe because of something you've done or that was done to you. Or maybe you just don't feel significant enough to get on anyone's radar. God, he sees you. So if that connects with you, I hope that you will feel that. That a loving God, the God of the universe, the creator of everything that is, he sees you and he loves you. And if you don't feel that, you're like, man, I'm actually doing pretty good. I, I, I feel very seen and loved. Okay, great. That's great. I want you to remember that Jesus came to bring hope and life, especially to those who feel unseen. So let us be the ones on his behalf that are noticing and loving those who are feeling disconnected, who are feeling isolated. So David has done this horrible thing. He's done this horrible thing. And, um, and again, from his perspective, I mean, obviously a few people know. The guards know. Probably a few people in the household know. Obviously the commander that let Uriah die, I mean, he knows. That's a tight group of people that he trusts. So big picture, he's avoided this scandal, or at least that he believes that he has, except for, again, is, this would be in the more yikes kind of way, God saw that. God saw it. And he's going to send a prophet, a guy named Nathan, to come to David. And we find this story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. I mean, I, I know that's supposed to be cute, but that's also just a little bit weird. I mean, he's, just, he's telling this story. He's a setup here. He's telling this to David like it's a true story, but we're going to find out it's just a parable. But, like, I mean, like, I don't know. Anyways. Verse 4, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And so he has a very strong moral outrage to this. I cannot believe that that rich man would take the only thing that this poor guy had and do that to him. I cannot believe it. And he's like, that guy's got to die. Very strong reaction. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord God says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before, before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Again, it's, it, it, is, it is for me one of the top 10 most troubling stories in the Bible. And especially around uh, a guy that's a hero. I mean, like one of the, one of the Bible's big heroes. And that this, this story, and then Matthew's like, when you think about Jesus coming, I want you to remember this story. And it's like, like it, is, it is a blemish in Israel's history. It is, it is actually con- like considered kind of like one of the primary causes of what ended up kind of making the whole empire, the whole kingdom ex- implode and, and was divided a generation later. He's like, remember this story. Of course, then the answer is why. The answer is, the question, the, the question we ask is why, 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 would, why would we need to do this? What is it that he's wanting us to notice? As we think about remembering David and the worst thing that he had ever done. And I think there are a couple of things as we're trying to process for us this worst moment in David's life and really one of the worst moments in the history of the Jewish people as a whole. What are we supposed to do with this? And there are a couple of things that I want to make sure that really catch our attention. And the first one is this, is that the gap between Jesus and, quote, the best of us is huge. The gap is huge. When we read more about David, he is described for the rest of this time. After this, has this moment of repentance here with Nathan. He writes these Psalms where he is confessing his sin and just talking about how awful it was and how he wants God to make him new and he wants to be renewed in his spirit by God and he understands what he did. It was how bad it was. And he's described as a man who has God's heart in a very particular way. And he's described as the ideal king from here on out as you go through the rest of Samuel, you go through the rest of kings, we'll see, okay, and this king, this guy was king over here and if he was a good king, it said, and he was a good king like David was. And, that's what, and he was a bad king. He did not follow in the ways of his father David. And he is considered the ideal king. He was the best at it. And you may look at this and say, that is not, he is not the best of us. But i tell you this, he was in fact, you read the stories, he was the best of the Israel kings. This is it. This guy and that's, that should be a little horrifying. But if I were to say to you that the best, the best Israelite king, the, the best person who was given absolute power and authority to do whatever he wanted, this was the best. Corruption, idolatry, taking this level of wickedness and just going to new levels, that's what the history is. You put one of them or any of us where you have absolute power and authority. You have both the financial resources and you have the power to do whatever you want. 
This is what becomes of us. You don't have to look through the history. You can go way past the history of Israel to look at all the people who had this level of power. And it's not, these, these aren't good stories. But Philippians 2 describes Jesus this way, that he had all the power of the universe. He was equal with God and had all of the power that God has. And he says that he did not regard it, which is an interesting phrase. He didn't regard it. He didn't, he didn't highly esteem that as something he should like keep holding on to. But it says he emptied himself of that and became a person, not just a person, but a servant, not just a servant, but a servant who sacrifices his life and not just one who sacrifices his life, but one who did it in a horrible way so that we could have life with him. What he did with all of the power in the world was humble himself and sacrifice himself for us. And the gap between him and us is bigger than we imagine. Jesus is so much more than the ideal person. Like, just imagine the best person you can think of, and that's who Jesus is. The gap both just in, his, in who he was, his qualities, his morality, his love. He doesn't love the most of anybody you know. The gap of his love and his care for you, his humility, his goodness, his faithfulness, who he is. He is the son of David and we connect him then, the people who, especially the original readers, we connect him. He is the, he's going to be the ideal king. The gap is tremendous. This is a story, this is a message around who Jesus is, and he is of a quality that is beyond just, you know, I heard some good things about Jesus. He's a good guy, and he teaches some good things, and he lived a good life. He is so much more than that. He is God, and he is worthy of our worship, and because of his goodness and greatness, he is able to give us life. And you compare that to David, and, 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 and it's interesting. Like, I just keep going back to, why is this story here? And not just this one, but lots of stories. There's lots of stories like this. And I was talking about this with Matt, our youth pastor, this week. And I said, let's try to come up with, other than Jesus, who do we think are like the five most significant historical people in the Bible as far as had the greatest impact? And we come up with the list, and we were absolutely together on four of them. Like you got Abraham, who founded the Israelite nation. You got Moses, who led the Exodus. You got the ideal king here, David. You got Paul in the New Testament. You know, maybe, maybe Elijah for that one. Um, uh, maybe Peter uh, from the New Testament. Somebody that came up to me, made a case in between services, was like trying to make the case for Noah, who saved the world with, his, with the boat, right? I was like, okay, great. You got, okay, put all that together, right? No matter who you make, you've got those four plus one, you got five. Of these top five, three of them were involved in murder. Paul, Moses, and David. And these stories are not, they're not cast aside. They're not put little cute spins on them. They're just told. Which again, you expect to read some book like this, some sort of religious mythical book. 
you would expect it to make all of the heroes heroes. But that's not what God's word does. God's word is not some mythical creation. It is telling a story about the reality of what people are like and what sin is and the devastation that it causes. And so I think one of the reasons, the big reason why this story is in there, why Matthew wants us to remember, why so many bad stories like this are in there, because he wants you to know this, that God will forgive anything and he will love you unconditionally. God's working on a completely different level than us. I mean, there was, I mean, just imagine, like you've got somebody and they're the president and they do something like this while in office. Now, 20 years ago, I'd have had full confidence that we as an entire country would have been completely outraged and run this person out of office. I have very little confidence in that now, but there's part of me that still is like, I think, I think, I think, I think most of us, would be outraged by this and be like, but he said he was sorry. Okay, go be sorry in jail, right? Go be sorry in jail. But God, God forgives him. Interesting, I don't want to take it too far. He does, he does make him go to jail. I mean, it is, he, is, he is severely punished for this and it's described here by Nathan. It wrecks his family. It passes on a lineage of, of destruction that destroys his family is going to ultimately destroy the kingdom. He can't unring a bell. God's forgiveness is not like, well, now it's going to, it will be like it never happened out here. But in your relationship with God and his love and affection for you personally and the hope that he gives you for this life and the next, it is like it never happened. David was a man after his own heart. There's no asterisk there. And I know this from interacting with so many people for so long that there are a lot of you here as you think about, hey, let's talk about the worst thing you've ever done. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? There are some of us the belief in our hearts, when these things pop into our mind when we're driving by ourselves on the road, that there's something about that that makes you unredeemable, unlovable, unforgivable. And that that is why I'm alone. That is why I'm isolated. And I think there is a reason why God puts stories in there about the worst things that some of these people have done that are far worse than the worst thing you've ever done. Because God is showing us how deep and powerful his grace and his love and his forgiveness, how deep they all are. And I hope that there can come a moment in your life where God can fully redeem the worst things in your life of at least a testament to his love and forgiveness. We've got these two terrible stories we've looked at over the last few weeks and God redeemed them in a way where they get to be a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. And God is showing us through this how he can bring hope and life in the darkest of places. And so if you've never experienced that, 
our hope, our prayer is that you would allow Jesus Christ's forgiveness to come to you because he came here to demonstrate this level of forgiveness and love to us. And then as a sacrifice for us, bring healing and new life to all of us if we will put our faith and trust in him. So I pray that in the same way that you will ask God to forgive you and to give you a new life. If you have done that, I just, again, as, we get, as we're celebrating Christmas, as we're thinking about these stories and we think about what it means that Jesus has come into the world, I pray that you will allow God, all of us will allow it to come back and remember and trust that God is making us new. God has forgiven us. God has given us new life. So let's let this Christmas season be a time where we either embrace or re- either embrace for the first time or for the next time the unconditional love, forgiveness, and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, on the one hand, I love that these stories are here. On the other hand, they're just uncomfortable. I think uncomfortable, sometimes they just feel like a mirror. Not necessarily to the things that we've done. It kind of just it can be some of the darkness in our own hearts. But God, I pray that we wouldn't see it that way. We would see these stories as a mirror into your heart, a reflection of who you are and the limitless grace and compassion and love that you have for us. And so God, I pray that none of us would walk away from here or this Christmas season feeling unseen, feeling unloved, feeling unforgivable. But God, that we would, we would know that you see, we would know that you love, we'd know that you forgive. And that God, that you would give us hope in this life and in the next. And that God, that we can be men and women who are also deeply connected to your heart. And we're so thankful for your son for making this possible. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.